Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about finding synchronicity, the connection between spirituality, positive psychology, and quantum physics. My first guest is Dr. Amit Koswami. Today, we are talking about the quantum science of happiness with my friend and returning guest, theoretical quantum physicist, Dr. Amit Goswami, who is a retired full professor from the University of Oregon's Department of Physics, where he served from 1968 to 1997. He is a pioneer of the new paradigm of science called Science Within Consciousness, an idea he explicated in his seminal book, The Self-Aware Universe, where he also solved the quantum measurement problem elucidating the famous observer effect. We've talked about this in other episodes, so you'll have to listen to those where we talk about The Witness. But today we're talking about his newest book, The Quantum Science of Happiness. Welcome back, Dr. Amit Goswami. Hi, Lisa. Thanks uh, for having me. So it is always a pleasure to be with you because I learned so much from you and uh, I love your joyful spirit. Thank you. Let's talk about what quantum physics teaches us about the fundamental reality of being. Yes, quantum physics is fundamentally different than the scientific opinion that is prevalent among many scientists today, a very false ideology called scientific materialism. Everything is matter. Now, this excludes many things, like we have access to meaning, all human beings process meaning, it excludes that. All human beings have feelings, it excludes that. Human beings have intuition, human beings have spiritual experiences. All of that is excluded in this philosophy of scientific materialism. So what has happened, the world of science has become very cloistered in a shell, which can only talk about human beings as machines. So quantum science is a big liberation from it because we cannot understand quantum physics without changing the paradigm and accept a new paradigm that consciousness is the ground of being, not matter. We are made of consciousness, not matter. Matter is the hardware. Consciousness mm. expresses itself using the hardware. And then using matter as hardware, it makes software in matter to make living matter and then improve the software to get thinking matter, which is the brain. And so in this way, certain things come into matter. It seems like they're coming into matter, but they really are, is consciousness making software in matter of something that is not matter. In other words, our vital energies, mental meanings, archetypal intuitions, they are not material. 
it's pretty obvious if you're a non-scientist, but scientists who are prejudiced about matter being everything, for them, it is a very difficult thing to accept because their consciousness is so constricted that they don't experience any of these things that I'm talking about, although they do experience meaning, but they just deny it. They deny that they experience <laughs> meaning beyond what is in the brain. Meaning deniers. Uh, yeah, meaning deniers in the sense that they don't accept the idea that new meaning comes from outside. They think the brain somehow, somehow makes new meaning out of old meanings that are already in it. But how can it do this? I mean, if you take any great discovery of physics or great uh, painting or great art or, or even great dancing, and you will find that it's impossible that such greatness is already captured. It's not new. I mean, what, we, what creativity is by definition is the new. The scientists literally deny the existence of creativity. All creativity is rehashed for them. And that is just a wrong picture of the human being and declares the human being cannot change. And that, of course, is the biggest bugaboo. So as a result, what happens is that the basic human being is the one that the scientists approve. And people are gradually, because of their ignorance and because of the social pressure of scientific materialism, they are becoming like that. You know, when somebody tells you that you are an idiot, then you become a bit of an idiot unless you are very, very careful and a rebel at heart. Yeah. Oh, so, this is this is. Let's stop here for a second because I think this is really, really important about where where thought meets action. You know, and and believing what we think or what we hear or what we see or what we're told. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, we know that today the, the people are so dumbed down. Some of the young people. They're so dumbed down, literally, by information yeah. processing and social media. They cannot even handle a book. They don't read books. They have forgotten the pleasure. I mean, books revolutionized human civilization. But now people prefer tidbits of news, tidbits of a show, um, because they cannot handle The attention span is now 1.6 seconds. <laughs> and their attention is gone. Yeah. So how can they read a book which needs much more attention for prolonged periods? And yet when you ask somebody what they want, if you were really to go back in time and you ask somebody in 2019 or in 1919 what they want, somewhere in the equation of what they describe that they want for their lives is some semblance of happiness. Yeah, but everyone wants happiness. That's the problem. Right. And so there is also a misunderstanding about happiness too. Because of what many, it is. Many people mean by happiness simply pleasure. And they cannot distinguish between pleasure and happiness. Pleasure is built into the brain. The brain has pleasure circuits. Pleasure is a molecular phenomenon. If the brain has dopamine, you feel pleased. Now, these dopamine molecules are also connected with happiness, true happiness, which is expansion of consciousness. Try it out. It's so simple. I mean, of course, you have many, many experiences of expanded consciousness. I don't, I'm not talking literally to you, but to the audience. If you have doubts about what expanded consciousness can do to you, just simply watch yourself when you are having a love experience. You'll find that your, your consciousness has simply expanded. And this consciousness expansion is what we um, experience as relaxation, letting go. You let go, you become vulnerable. All these things happen because you are relaxed, you are happy. Ex your consciousness has expanded. 
when consciousness expands beyond all limits, then we say we are in the quantum self. We are in quantum consciousness. That's the highest state of happiness. But the capacity to expand consciousness, that capacity one can learn. Well, we have even, the science has progressed so far that we now have a scale of happiness. <laughs> I'm laughing because we, we joke about it around here, the happy meter. Yeah, I know. But it's no joke because, because you can measure your own where you are in that scale. Because if you are high up in the scale, your, uh, the time it takes for recovering from an upset will uh, reduce to almost zero. Yeah. I mean, I'm living proof of I proved it to myself. But it's, it's amazing. I used to get angry so quickly, and then the anger would stay and stay and stay. And now, first of all, I don't get angry uh, very often. But even if I get uh, angry in some very special cases, the return is so quick. Uh, it's a pleasure. I mean, anger is a suffering for yourself, right? But it can be useful. I mean, I think that, you know, if one is angry, you know, probably one of the most well-received small pieces I ever wrote was called Happily Pissed Off, you know, where you're really like owning it. Like you really get it. Like I'm angry. This is what I'm angry about. I'm going to vent it. And then I am going to move on. Exactly. And if you can reach a place where you don't even need to vent it, you just meditate on it and you have already brain circuits of positive emotion, which will balance the negative by itself and you are free. That's what happens to me. Or if yeah, I'm even more aware and more creative, then just intuition. Just intuition leads to the recovery from the anger. So it's a major emancipation. You know, we talk about freedom. Where is freedom if any little upset will get me into these big upheavals into mood? You know, people who have mood, mood swings. You know, how can one be, one be creative if one has frequent mood swings? I mean, look, like, let's look at the great artists like Van Gogh. If you were not having these mood swings, imagine how much more creative he would be. But he was caught up in almost like madness, and of course that took a toll. So many people are very neurotic. We call it the happiness level one. And then normal... <laughs> <laughs> that is zero. Happiness level zero is the psychotic. <laughs> expansion of consciousness. Their consciousness is so constricted and depressed people. I mean, intellectuals are very close to depression. So intellectuals are not often not very much beyond, you know, often they're zero or they're ones at the best. And some of them are two, and they are the creative intellectual. Creativity gets you out of that rut. It's funny that you mentioned that, because in doing this show, it's probably close to 10 years, and interviewing all the amazing minds in positive psychology and thinkers and change agents, there's one particular positive psychologist. I'm going to not name that person's name, but this person said, you know, I'm not that happy of a person, actually. <laughs> well, at least you're honest about it. Yeah. Most yeah. people aren't, they fake. I mean, you know, when survey after survey shows that most Americans are happy. I don't know what they're talking about. When Mother Teresa came to America in the 90s, you were too young, perhaps, but... Uh, um, and you're too kind. Yes. <laughs> you know, the news people asked, him, asked her, why are you here? Because shouldn't you be taking care of destitutes? 
And she said that there are more destitutes here than in Kolkata because here people are so unhappy. <laughs> Their mind is a problem. Sheer amount of mental unhappiness that Americans suffer from would be shocking if they admitted it to themselves. But of course, today you have suffering, you are, you are unhappy, so you go and buy a pair of shoes, you know, high heels, you wear it. We were talking about chakras in one show, and if you wear high heels, this crown chakra is immediately um, affected, of course. Because that must be it. Feet are connected with also the sex organs. So you feel a little more sexual, you feel more acceptable, your body image is satisfied. And those are the mystery of why we go and buy shoes, especially the women among us. Thank you. You've just uh, diagnosed and and analyzed what's going on over here. Thank you. (laughs) But it's true. It is true. It is true. But but what about the beauty? Now I'm going to get turned very serious here. The beauty and joy in our darkness. This is something that as, as Westerners, we are not trained to embrace or think about. In fact, we are taught to reject. Well, it also depends on the language to some extent. You know, we should uh, learn to distinguish between happiness and pleasure. Hindus are very lucky. They have two words already built into it. The Sanskrit word for pleasure is sukha. But the Sanskrit word for joy is ananda. So everybody knows when you say ananda, you're talking about expansion of consciousness. But if you're talking about pleasure, you're talking about sukha, which is the opposite of suffering. Dukkha is suffering, sukha is pleasure. So you, you know what to look for. In the, but the problem is, you know, I have been writing for 20 years and I have tried to teach so much uh, people to distinguish between pleasure and happiness, but they just forget. They talk about if you have pleasure in your life, you talk about as happy. But you're not happy with pleasure. Pleasure is a very temporal thing. It passes. It passes. You're pleased. You're, uh, that's it. I mean, you're, you're pleased. But that's the difference between, you know, that hedonic happiness, right, that comes from the shoes or, or the sexual encounter, the dopamine release. And then the, the flip side, you know, the, the eudaimonia, right, that comes from making meaning out of our lives. Exactly. So unless we start making meaning and start having noble feeling, uh, those feelings with the heart chakra and beyond, navel chakra and beyond, uh, and open feeling. And navel chakra, a closed feeling, ordinary feeling is not so great. But, you know, that leads to narcissism. I mean, Donald Trump, again. But he's a good example of all this neurotic behavior. But then you get to higher feelings and you get great beings. And more high it is like people with open heart chakra, Mother Teresa. What a great being. Mother, Mother Teresa, Dan, yeah. What a great being. Let's take a break. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation. I'm talking today with my friend, Dr. Amit Goswami, about his newest book, The Quantum Science of Happiness. To learn more, please visit amitgoswami.org on Twitter at Quantum Activist and on Facebook, Quantum Activism. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services.
Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about finding synchronicity, the connection between spirituality, positive psychology, and quantum physics with my guest today, Dr. Amit Goswami. So Amit, prior to the break, we were talking about the valor, beauty, and joy of Mother Teresa. Yes. So Mother Teresa deals with destitutes, and yet she is a good example of happiness of level five. She lived in flow. Live in flow. Flow means that you are living both in your ego because you are doing something. You have to have strong ego. But you are also completely open and what we call a quantum self state. In the state of quantum self, you have no boundary. In the state of the ego, of course, you have boundary. You have ability to express. You have ability to do things and Mother Teresa is a doer, she takes care of people. So she does both in such a way that there is a, just a flow. You cannot distinguish where the ego begins or where the quantum self ends. There is no boundary anymore in the action. It's like a flow of a river. This is why we say go with the flow. But let me ask you something about Mother Teresa, because it's my understanding that her journals were, were discovered posthumously, and it was revealed in her, in her personal writing, in her journal, that she did suffer from depression. Of course, she did. She did. At some point, she went through a lot of that. But as her state became deeper and deeper, the sadhana, uh, then uh, there was much more relief than before. And what about the uses of adversity and depression? I mean, having had depression myself, and we talk about it a lot on the show, I'm not so sure that it is a bad thing when we learn to recognize that it's there for a purpose to awaken us and to shake us up. Yeah, because depression signifies that your energy is ready to move on from the heart chakra into higher chakras. So depression is a reminder. Depression is a reminder because you are not satisfying your higher impulses. The higher impulse is to go all the way beyond the fourth chakra, beyond the heart chakra, into the brow chakra, where we become open to intuition and eventually integrate all of our bodies. We are not just the physical body. We have the mental, the vital, the supramental, and even the bliss body where we can stay in ananda all the time. So why don't we? The reason is that we can't. We are too bound to the physical. And how to liberate that is the purpose of awakening the crown chakra. So the human purpose, the happiness runs parallelly. So as we open the heart, we, of course, we are happy, but we also have the upper occasional depression because we are not satisfying our higher chakras. We are not opening them. Then we go into opening the brow chakra. First, you have to learn how to express. So we open the throat chakra, then we open the brow chakra, and, and these aspects open up the higher states of happiness. Let me ask you a question about the, the scale of happiness. So in your newest book, The Quantum Science of Happiness, you go into this scale. Uh, and, and, and you started with, was, was it zero or one? Zero is psychosis. Yeah. One is neurosis. Two is normal. Now, what mostly people are, two is two requires special attention because people fluctuate from two minus, which is the lowest level of human, that pleasureful states that we are describing, human condition, me-centeredness, narcissism, plus negative emotion, brain circuits, plus pleasure. 
if you are, and, and now add information processing. Those are the four, the lowest denominator of human condition. So that makes you a two minus. You have no idea of what expansion of consciousness is about. You live just a typical, minimal living possible for a human being. And still you are not neurotic. So it's still... <laughs> two, sounds scary, a two minus. <laughs> You are not taking advantage of any of the potentiality that you have. So you start taking, becoming aware of the potentialities. You get into a little bit of creativity, a little bit of meaning. Immediately you become normal. Today, most people, not most perhaps, but still many, many people live in subnormal state, two minus. There are more two minus than two and two plus. And two plus is what Maslow used to have positive mental health. So you do a little bit of positive thing. You give, you express yourself, you become a little creative, um, you express feelings, you don't, you forgive people, you don't keep grudges, you become two plus. Level three is when you have emotional intelligence. This state, very, very important state. When we become aware that those negative emotions don't have to perturb us so much, we can develop positive emotional brain circuits, we can creatively explore feelings and archetypes, this beauty that you are talking about, love, we, we have been talking about a lot, any of the archetypes, truth, abundance, wholeness, goodness, they all take us to these states of three where we have positive emotional brain circuit, a sort of a representation of these archetypes with, with teacher's guidance, with available guidance. So it does not go all the way in the expansion, but some extent. And that expanded state of consciousness, we call level three of happiness. You have emotional equanimity to certain extent. Can it be even better? That's a level four where you start really, really exploring the archetype. But you can get caught into that too like Mother Teresa got caught in the heart and did not explore the higher archetype than that. So how high can we go? What, what have you identified? Is, is four the top or five? Well, if you go beyond, you learn to express beyond, and then you go into beyond, your third eye opens, and then all the other archetypes becomes available. And then, then you really can handle things like power, abundance, wholeness, especially, you know, those things. And they take you to levels of satisfaction. When we begin to get levels of satisfaction, depression will never touch us for more than a few moments at a time. Are appropriate. You know, when there's, when there's loss and then the appropriate response to loss is, can be depression. That's, that's normal. It's normal, exactly. But, but that doesn't happen anymore. If you have archetypes in your life, then you lose love, but the love of the archetype will rescue you from depression. Because the archetypes themselves become a being on your life. I know it myself. I know from my personal experience. So it's amazing. Who's your archetype? Uh, well, I have three archetypes in my life. Truth, love, and wholeness. Mm. It's the wholeness archetype that is my occupation with right now. I have, uh, to some extent, explored love quite a bit. Truth, of course, also quite a bit. But wholeness is um, something that I began to explore and had a wonderful breakthrough back in 1976, would you believe? 
And then that ability became expressed in all these things that I have done, all the research, all the living that I have done to become more happy. Eventually, it started coalescing just a few years back. And now this is what we call the manifestation stage. So my particular case, you know, in a way, I'm just a pathetic case because it took 40 years for me to manifest some wholeness in me. <laughs> You're a <laughs> but, consumer of your technology. <laughs> but better, better, better late than never. Yeah. So I'm happy that it's finally happening, but there is still some ways to go. And I think that that is probably the, the biggest gift or kernel that we can share with people is that it is not this sort of spontaneous joy that's saccharine sweet and, and comes over us like a tsunami of permanent, annoying, yellow, smiley face. That what we're talking about that contentment or equanimity or life satisfaction of being able to embrace anything. Yeah. That's yeah. happiness. That's happy. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this is where complete wholeness has been achieved. No, I haven't gotten that far, that you have total equanimity. Total equanimity is, um, you know, that, that will require maybe another incarnation. Another 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the practice. Or more, or more. Now we are really talking about doing the whole thing. I mean, uh, really, I mean, this is like, we call it quantum enlightenment. By the time you are established in wholeness, you have wholeness represented in your being, um, you are really a more or less an enlightened person. I, I mean, we, we get, I mean, you live in flow, more or less. You never get depressed. I mean, Mother Teresa lived in flow some of the time. She was taking care of a destitute, certainly. There was so much love in her heart. But at other, other times, as you have pointed out, you know, indeed, there were episodes of depression. Uh, there are couple of people. One is a poet in the uh, state that I was born in India called Bengal, named Rabindranath Tagore. He was a Nobel Prize winner poet. His songs are so beautiful, but he wrote songs, he wrote poetry, he wrote novels. He was a genius. And he seemed to have this kind of life of flow. Among Westerners, Walt Whitman is a good example of somebody who probably lived in flow. Some of his poems talks about it. That mm. for, for hours I am in flow kind of lines you have in his poetry. So now people all over the world who have got into the wholeness archetype, it is a wonderful state to live. And it's not like mystics where you live the world. The wholeness people, they stay in the world. This yeah. is the of this particular archetype. They're grounded. They're of this world. Of this world. Yeah. Yes. We are out of time. Oh, my goodness. You'll, we'll come back and we'll do more together because I love the time that we get to spend together. The book we've been talking about today is by theoretical quantum physicist, Dr. Amit Goswami. His newest is The Quantum Science of Happiness. I mentioned one thing. Oh, this, is, this book, Quantum Science of Happiness, is written with a psychotherapist named Sunita Patani. Ah, Sunita Patani. So co-authored. Co the, the Quantum yeah. Science of Happiness is co-authored. To learn more about Dr. Amit Goswami's work, please visit amitgoswami.org. On Twitter, you can connect at Quantum Activists. On Facebook, Quantum Activism. 
And for the new book, The Quantum Science of Happiness, is there a website for the book as well? Not yet. No. It, it, all the information or publication, etc., will be on my website, amitgoswami.org. Wonderful. Thank you, Amit. Thank you, Lisa. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. And follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about something that I find super interesting, and that is finding synchronicity, the connections between spirituality, positive psychology, and quantum physics. My next guest is Dr. Oliver Robinson. Oliver Robinson is a psychologist and interdisciplinary thinker whose work traverses adult development, dialectical thinking, science, and spirituality. We're here talking about his newest book, Path Between Head and Heart. Welcome, Oliver. Thanks for joining us again on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, it's a great pleasure. First, let's I want to give a little background uh, on you. You are a professor in the UK, and I'd love for you to talk about the work that you do at your university. And what what was the genesis or the inspiration for this book? Well, so yeah, at my university, in my daily life, my research focuses on how we all grow as human beings, mainly across adult life. So my specialism is adult development. And I look at that in a whole variety of ways. And I have researched uh, spirituality and how that sits within adult development, as well as various crises that are linked to particular age groups or life transitions. And I've also been looking recently at how the contents of our dreams relate to particular life experiences, life events, crises uh, that we're going through. But I've always had a a sideline interest outside, which kind of sits slightly beyond my work as a psychologist in the interdisciplinary space that traverses science and spirituality. And I've helped organize conferences in that area. I've written in that area. But it's kind of been an extracurricular thing for me because it's beyond, it includes psychology, but it includes philosophy and history and mysticism, spirituality, all sorts. So the book is a chance of uh, crossing boundaries, of integrating some of the reading that I've been doing for the past 10 years. And it's a great read. In the book, you talk about, you know, interesting people who have dabbled in this area that I would say the convergence of heart and mind, you know, particularly mm. I'm interested in, in Albert Einstein and Darwin. Mm. Um, talk a little bit about these figures and how their curiosity in this realm inspired you. Right. Well, what I found the more that I looked at the development of the past few hundred years, the, the, the key developments in science, but philosophy as well, what I realized is that the people who were really moving things forward, who were thinking in new ways, were doing so in a way that were, which was integrating some of the insights and practices they were exploring in spirituality. Now, Einstein 
famously was fascinated by a, a whole range of, of spiritual matters he talked about. Buddhism, he talked about this idea that we're more than our isolated selves. He even talked about God in his own way. But he was you know, very explicit that he wasn't religious, but this was an interest for him. And he would meditate. I don't think he would have called it meditation, but he would go into these deep reveries, these deep flights of imagination. He would go deep within himself. And he was famous for saying that he felt that the imagination was more important than um, the measurement or reason. He felt that was the source of great leaps forward in, in how we understand ourselves and the universe. Uh, and so he was a good example of someone who managed to bond the real benefits of the real insights that come from both science and spirituality. But so many key figures managed to achieve this, whether it was Humphrey Davy a century before, whose insights in chemistry were unparalleled, but was also exploring altered states of consciousness and was a deeply spiritual person, but again, in a very unconventional way. He was not much interested in the observances of religion. And then in the, in the insights of quantum physics, Schrodinger, probably most famously, was really interested in, um, in mysticism and, uh, and particularly Vedanta, which is an Eastern philosophy. And that enormously influenced how they made sense of the extraordinary paradoxes of the quantum world. And more recently, I point to Jane Goodall, mm. um, the primatologist who's deeply spiritual as well, and also writes about how she feels that the qualities and insights that she's developed from spiritual practice and from interacting with the natural world in a spiritual way have been integral to her life, but also to furthering her science too, with all its with all its its rigors uh, and requirement for for reason and and, and mathematics. What I love about the people that you, you have shared is obviously these are great thinkers, high intellect, and yet the heart and the matters of spirituality are parallel in their lives and in their practices. Absolutely. And they, in a sense, have provided this kind of this, this ideal, and indeed many have, this ideal of what happens if you manage to cultivate your intellect and also cultivate your heart and your soul. Uh, we want to define that. But certainly that part of yourself that doesn't fit within the strictures of reason, thinking and language so easily, the things that it's harder to say, but easier to feel, uh, they are such a big part of being human. And you can cultivate them just like you can cultivate thinking. So just how you can educate yourself to think more clearly and to reason more accurately and to critically examine things better. You can cultivate feelings. You can cultivate your capacity to have uh, a sense of peace uh, or well-being within yourself and indeed a sense of joy and positivity towards others too. And that is in many ways what spirituality is. Uh, it's that it's that disciplined, long-term cultivation of that part of yourself which, which uh, sits slightly beyond the intellect. And when we talk about cultivation, what are yes. some of the practices? I mean, I think I know what you're going to say, but I would rather you share some of the practices that lead us to this more developed place. Well, crucially, all the practices that I mentioned in the book, and I'll briefly list now, are those which lead in a direction that's slightly away from, or certainly in a kind of, in a kind of natural tension with reason thinking. Because we think an awful lot. It's rather hard to turn off 
the tap of thought. We tend to kind of have this internal monologue going through our minds most of the time. But certainly, I think that the, uh, there are a range of practices which allow us to exist in a way where we are more directly in, in the present moment and in our feelings and in our bodies than in our minds and our thoughts. And meditation and yoga are probably the most famous. There are various forms of contemplative prayer that I would mention as well, but also things like forms of poetry, famously the Japanese form of poetry, haiku, which is about trying to encounter things in a kind of pure sense of exactly how they are without trying to explain them too hard, trying to sort of convey with what you perceive in your heart in words. But I would, and I'd also uh, refer to something called deep listening, which is just simply encountering music in a spiritual way, using music in a spiritual way. Also, this, uh, practices which involve trying to explore what you feel your purpose is in a way where you're not trying to rationally discover what you're, what you're supposed to be doing here uh, or what, where you're supposed to be going with your life. But you're trying to, as it were, cultivate that deep sense of gut feeling which leads you, I think, which leads many people towards making some of the biggest decisions they ever make. Most people will describe making their biggest decisions, not based on reason, but on a deep sense of what they feel is the right thing to do. And again, that can be cultivated too through particular ways of exploring our inner world. I have a couple of questions. The first is um, to ask you to elaborate a little bit more on deep listening. Because I've never heard sure. that term. I mean, I, I I believe I understand what it means, but yeah. what a lovely way to refer to being present, you know, with mm. with music yeah. or with others. Yeah, sure. The phrase is from someone called Judith Becker, uh, who wrote a book about trance, but using music to elevate consciousness in a in a way. And she, that so that's where so uh, she referred to this idea of deep listening. And well, music is a wonderful example of why the very same thing can be encountered in two ways, because music it can, is amenable to science. You can explore the mathematics and the reasons why certain musical notes, me melodies, harmonies are attractive to the ear because they have mathematical qualities. As you move up through a scale, as you move up every octave, the frequency of the note exactly halves. So you have all these beautiful mathematical harmonies in music. But if you try and analyze a piece of music as you're listening to it, if you try and decompose it into its constituent parts, if you try and be scientific towards it when you listen to it, you'll kill its spiritual power. Uh, it becomes a kind of a thing, an object, uh, which... Uh, but deep listening involves allowing yourself to merge with with the music in some way, mm. uh, allowing yourself to feel one with it and to allow its wholeness, the fullness of it, irrespective of all the different parts and the particular elements that constitute it, to manifest as something which is more than uh, just uh, sound going in your ear. And music is not just sound going in your ear. It's about a meeting of you and something mysterious inside of you and what comes in your ear. Oh, this, that is so beautifully described. The other, um, question I have is regarding purpose, because one yeah. of the areas that I believe that we can cultivate more of is intuition. So when you're talking about having this sense of purpose, that it is calling upon intuition, which some people may say is spirit, you know, to guide. Yes. Exactly. So science has always been a little bit wary of purpose because the scientific project, which started with Galileo and Francis Bacon and 
people like that. They tried to the, the, the kind of the part of the what they were doing was trying to avoid talking about purpose. So Galileo explicitly said, I'm going to try and study the world without referring to purpose at all. Hmm. And I'm just going to talk about the mechanism and matter of things. So how things function, not why things functioned, you know, what. So and he had huge success in understanding the motions of the planets and light. And, and Newton was the same. He preferred to just stick to mechanisms and motions and matter. So science was always a little bit wary of purpose. And you can understand why, because when they were starting to do their thing, when they were starting to develop science as a new area of, of study, the worldview was one where everything had a purpose to the point where if you saw a cloud in the sky, why is that there? Well, what's its purpose for me or for human beings? Everything came back to kind of what purpose it had for us. Um, so it was actually a little bit, it was a kind of it was purpose, but it was quite egocentric. It was a bit like <laughs> the world is the world is here for us and everything has a reason for me, for us. It's all part of God's purposes. So they, I think we had to let purpose go to then bring it back in. And now exploring your purpose means the very contrary to just kind of fitting in with everybody else. It's like, it's here I am with all my unique gifts in this strange thing called life. You know, how, how can I turn my life from a series, series of haphazard events into some kind of coherent project towards something that feels like it's not just a thing to do, but it has this deep meaning attached to it and it feels right as well as it's sort of making sense. Speaking of purpose, Oliver, we're going to need to take a little break and then we will come back. And that's a promise to learn more about the work of Professor Oliver Robinson and his new book, Paths Between Head and Heart, Exploring the Harmonies Between Head and Heart. Go to www.oliverrobinson.info. It's a bit of a new uh, domain, and that is www.oliverrobinson.info, I-N-F-O. He doesn't have any social media, and I want to talk about that on purpose because there's a specific reason why. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Finding Synchronicity, the connection between spirituality, positive psychology, and quantum physics with my guest today, Dr. Oliver Robinson. Let's return to the conversation. So Oliver, prior to the break, we were talking about purpose 
you know, and, mm. and, and cultivating purpose, cultivating intuition. And you were speaking of Galileo and his exploration of the world and believing as humans that we are the center of the world and then up oh, discovering that we're not. <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. So the, the science has to a large degree tried to avoid matters of purpose and focus on how things function and the ma- and the, the matter of which they're composed rather than speculating about you know why things that might be here but then that leaves us as individual humans thinking well you know i i have a strong sense of purpose i have a strong sense that i need to move towards something in my life so where am i going to devise that from and i should say that galileo and the key movers in science they were again all very spiritual including galileo even though he wasn't you know he wasn't very on good terms with the catholic church he was a very spiritual man he did think thought about becoming a monk and, you know, he didn't think that there was no purpose, just that science shouldn't talk about it. It wasn't its rightful domain. And he's right that spirituality is, is a better place to discuss matters of purpose um, because they are very difficult to see and pin down and measure. Purposes are invisible, even though they sit within us as things that feel uh, very real. But I'll, I'll say one thing which is important, which is that it's very difficult to know where you're going if you don't know where you are. And uh, it's a bit like with a, with, well said. A, it's a bit like with a map. You, a map is only of any use in working out where you're going if you know where you are on that map. And sometimes we spend our, our lives with our minds so diffuse uh, in terms of buzzing around in a thousand different possible directions. So, in terms of establishing a personally exploring purpose, part of part of that involves working out what feels like a meaningful journey for you with your particular talents, gifts, and circumstances in the world. But first, it also means being able to be in the present moment peacefully uh, without uh, excessive anxiety or concern or too many thoughts jostling in to make sure that if you're making big choices about what to do with your life, you make them from a position of centeredness and calm because that's the place from which all great ideas and all great purposes spring. If we try and make big decisions and just try and frame our purpose when we are feel like we're frenetically pulled in 10 directions at once, there's a good chance that we'll make the wrong one because it'll be one based on fear rather than on you know the better, more tranquil feelings that tend to lead to our, our higher motives. It's interesting because as you're speaking, I'm thinking about spiritual practice in daily life and yeah. Thinking about my own experience as I, as I've grown older about being able to more fully occupy life, you know, with its ups mm. and downs, the good, the bad, the challenges, yeah. the triumphs, that that in of itself has become spiritual practice. Absolutely. And I think that's a really important thing to say is that you can point to particular spiritual practices. You can take 15 minutes or half an hour out to meditate or uh, to walk down the beach or do some yoga poses or whatever it is that you feel punctuates your day appropriately. But in the end, it's an attitude and a a way of being that can occupy the whole of life Mm. so that everything gradually kind of develops a sort of sacred quality to it and a, a meaningful quality to it. In the same way as if you develop your scientific side as a human being, that permeates your life as a whole. So you're able to be critical, thoughtful, reflective, evidential, when you're surfing social media and making sure you don't fall for fake news, you know, so it's so both science and spirituality can become to permeate your whole being and define you as a person and make sure that you remain balanced and whole because they represent these two archetypal uh, sides of, of our nature. 
Speaking of social media, I had mentioned before we went to the break that you don't have social media, and we briefly spoke about it, and I asked if we could talk about it on the show because it is part of your practice, which I really respect. Yeah, thanks. So, so I have been involved. I used Facebook in the past, and I still have a live account there. I haven't been on it for some months. I've not been on Twitter. I use social media in the sense that I use WhatsApp, and and I kind of think that email is kind of social media in its own way. But that's this is a key point because as an academic, and as someone who writes books, I get probably about a hundred emails a day, and so managing that alone is a task in itself. To, to make sure that you don't get overwhelmed by that flood of communications coming through that medium. And I feel that, and obviously I'm on the internet a lot as well, so I can source you know, the, the almost infinite amount of information immediately. So I'm very much part and very much value being part of the interconnected nexus, and I love my smartphone. But I do think that in this day and age, we've only had about a decade to get used to being part of this radically interconnected world. And we have to manage our boundaries and make sure that we keep our still center intact. And for me, that means having not a huge time and presence on social media, just because I feel like um, over and above my my life as a parent and as, an, as a, you know, the work that I do and all the things that I appreciate, that I feel like it's almost like it feels just one bit too much for me, you know, and, and I've had a lot of had conversations with many of my students and all of them have discussed their own challenges with social media and the way that they feel it's invasive. And many of them will delete certain apps or stop or, or bar accounts at crucial times in the year if they have exams coming up or other big things. So everybody is trying to manage it in their own particular way. And yeah, you know, I, I'm fundamentally quite a quiet person. I think I'm probably in terms of my inner nature, I'm probably an introvert. And so that means that, you know, I have to kind of make sure that every day there's time where I really feel the silence and I can hear the birds tweeting outside and I'm just here and no one else with no one else around. And that's so that's my particular thing. The real birds tweeting. (laughs) Thank you for that. The real birds tweeting and real faces. Yeah, I appreciate that's the balance that I've found and everyone will find their own. But I do feel that it's challenging to be alive right now in in a new way. While growing interconnectedness around the world is something to be embraced, we have to make sure that we manage our own wholeness and our own health because all of us now who have smartphones and are on social media and email have instant global effects. You can press a button and someone on the other side of the world will respond within a second. And that means that we're kind of spread out. We're like ourselves are smudged out through cyberspace. And that can mean that you that you kind of lose, as I say, that still center, that sense of, of being embodied and, and singular and right in the present moment. Uh, yeah, I think partially one of the, the reasons why things like um, meditation, but also ecstatic dance practices like five rhythms are growing in popularity is because they, uh, in, in this day and age, being having your attention fully in the present moment is more important than ever. I couldn't agree with you more. For me, I too am a meditator and I practice yoga and that has actually helped me cultivate both inner and outer space, you know, that the ability to be more present, but also the ability to be more focused when I do need to activate the brain power, I can be more spot on and productive. I mean, that is the benefit, the byproduct. Absolutely. Have you ever tried any spiritual dance practices? 
I, well, yes, because I'm a tango dancer. So I, for me, that is one of oh, the wow. most spiritual uh, of dances. It's not, uh, I'm not a whirling dervish, but you know, we're the ecstatic dance in that way. But yes. I agree. I think tango is an incredibly spiritual dance. The oh, way that it gosh. channels feeling, goodness. Yes. But for me, five rhythms, which I know is popular in the USA as well. No, has been I don't know it. It may be, but not amongst our listeners. Tell us what that is. Oh, well, yeah. So it originated in California at the Asselin Institute. So a woman called Gabrielle Roth wrote a book called Maps of Maps of Ecstasy, I think it was. Um, but she also developed this uh, practice called Five Rhythms, which is a, it's a meditative movement practice where you move your body following five rhythms in a, in a defined sequence. And I'm going to have to now remember what those are. But in no particular order, just as they come to mind, there's lyrical, chaos, staccato stillness and one other that's just not popping into my mind right now so it's this journey through rhythm oh wow uh, it usually takes about an hour or 90 minutes and people come together as a group and and there's no there's no agenda it's like meditation and that there's nothing you can't succeed or fail so whatever you do for that 60 minutes is right whether that's just standing still and wiggling or flailing around or moving as a you know, in whatever way the music moves you. And it's, it's freeing. It's, it's very embodying. What's nice is that typically over the course of the hour or, or two, you very, you radically lose a sense of self-consciousness. So you kind of leave your ego behind a bit and you feel things more deeply than you normally would. So it's, yeah, it's, it, there are now probably 20 regular classes in London alone. Um, it's become a big thing. So, uh, and I do talk about it in the book, it went in the chapter on thinking and feeling. And yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, uh, it's an important innovation. That's what it's a nice thing about spirituality these days is it's not anchored to the past. Lots of people are coming up with cool new ideas. And if they, if they move people and, and they catch on, they, you know, like five rhythms, they become kind of more and more defining of our spiritual landscape and of our culture. Well, I am definitely going to go seeking five rhythms, even though it, the birthplace is right in our backyard here. That doesn't always mean that it that we know about it. Sometimes it takes off in other places, which is kind of sure. interesting. Speaking of the book, I'd love for you to read a passage before we go. Sure thing. What I'm actually going to read is just a, a couple of paragraphs on science and spirituality. As I say here, science pursues truth through its methodology that links the collection of external evidence with mathematics and reason thinking. The intention of, in the scientific method is to elicit dispassionate and objective knowledge about the external world, which transcends any individual point of view and is superior to common sense. Spirituality pursues truth, not as something beyond subjective consciousness, but as a state of awakeness and higher awareness within it. Through practice, the seeker connects with a ground of being beyond ego, which is felt to be a source of authentic love, compassion and peace and that connects people and other living things together. It is as though we are all cups of ocean water, and through spiritual practice, we eventually realize our true identity is ocean, not cup. Well, that's so beautiful. And I'll add in one final element towards the end, which is the dialectical approach to understanding science and spirituality, as well as being accurate in a factual sense, also represents an aspiration for development, such that the logic and rigor of the head and the feelings and intuitions of the heart find a healthy balance. Mm. To develop your scientific side is to enhance your knowledge and awareness of the world around you, to take an impersonal, unbiased view of yourself and others, 
to link rigorous and methodological observations to reason predictions and theories, and to understand the mechanisms and mathematics that describe how things work. To develop your spiritual side is to explore your own inner life through meditative or ecstatic practice, to connect with other people compassionately and kindly as beings worthy of your care and attention, to explore expanded levels of awareness, to experience more love and less fear, and to explore life's purpose and meaning on your own terms. These two trajectories of development work particularly well in combination. For being opposites, they correct the tendency in the other towards excess. My guest today has been Professor Oliver Robinson. The book we're talking about is Paths Between Head and Heart, Exploring the Harmonies Between Head and Heart. The book really talks about how science and spirituality can contribute complementary perspectives to our understanding of ourselves and of reality more generally. To learn more, please visit www.oliverrobinson.info. Once again, www.oliverrobinson.info. Oliver, thanks for joining me on the show. Well, it's been a pleasure to connect with you. It feels like I'm here with you in the room. I agree. Uh, even though I'm on the other side of an ocean. And I look forward to chatting uh, with you again soon. Me too. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Amit Goswami and Dr. Oliver Robinson, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.